0: So here's where we're going this morning. They actually set us up, and we didn't—I didn't even know they were gonna uh, be doing this until uh, yesterday. Um, going back to what? Mike, Mike is where we're going. Minor prophets. Did you guys know that? Okay, good. Um, by the way, minor is just not a good word because we start to think less than, and that's not uh, what we—that's not how we should think about these these prophets. They're basically laid in order. Uh, They're the last 12 books of the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, these 12 prophets are just one book, and they call them the book of the 12, uh, which I think is is more helpful. And just think about where we were last week at this time, like what we were doing in this room, what we were celebrating um, in light of Good Friday and what God did for us in Christ, how he, he came to this world and he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And then on that third day, he, he, he was resurrected. And what that means, uh, not just does it mean that Jesus wins and that he is alive, sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now. Um, but that first day, of the week is the first day of new creation that God is unleashing in our world, and it has begun. Um, and we get to participate in that. We get to partner with, with God uh, to do that. He doesn't save us, redeem us, resurrection, resurrect us just so he can take us off to heaven someday. He does it so he can partner with us to repair a broken world that he loves. And here's what happens. When God's people get off track, Happens to me, it happens to everybody. The prophets. (laughs) The prophets. I mean, we need the prophets today. Uh, The prophets are are, are so important because the prophets will even scream and yell at us if they have to, to remind us, no, this is who you are. This is your purpose for why you're in the world. Repent and get back onto that thing. Um, So today we're gonna look at the book of Micah and uh, seven chapters, I wasn't gonna preach this weekend, I just found out, so you guys gotta give me some grace today, okay? Um, to understand any prophet, we have to understand the background or the context in which uh, it is written. Um, Micah is, first of all, a contemporary with Amos, and since we already studied Amos, we, we know a little bit of that background. Uh, we talked about Amos' world. Uh, first, Israel at that time is not a united nation. A civil war split them into a north and a south. The north is called what? Does anybody remember? Israel, the south is called? Judah, awesome. Um, we also said that that was a time, remember when Amos was writing, it was, it was when uh, Israel and Judah were both experiencing a golden age. Their borders expanded. They start to control important trade routes, causing uh, both trade and their economies to boom, resulting in this huge influx of wealth and prosperity. And this is the world in which Micah is born into as well. Micah, though, was born in a small town, a rural town called Moresha. So think John Mellencamp. What song? <laughs> I was born in a small town, taught to fear Jesus in a small town. You guys know that song, right? I know I'm really getting old, but that's all right. Micah is also contemporaries with another prophet. Uh, This this prophet is a rock star prophet. Take a guess. Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is, is prophet in the big city to the big city of Jerusalem. He's an urbanite. In fact, he is the chief advisor to the kings, Isaiah. Micah, on the other hand, speaks from rural small town Judah. He is looking at all of this through the eyes of a working class farmer. I think this you'll see how this gets played out. Uh, we need both of these prophets. We need both Isaiah, we also need Micah. This book, because I'm hoping you're gonna read it this week, I can't explain it all, but it really is broken down into three sermons not preaching three sermons today, um, but we're gonna look at all three. Uh, the first sermon is chapters one and two, the second sermon is chapters three to five, and the third sermon is chapters six and seven. Each sermon pretty much has the same structure. First, it's Israel and Judah's sin that Micah lays out, followed by a warning of God's forthcoming judgment. Now let me just say this before we dive into this. I need this. We need this. I think like never before, we as God's people need to see our sin. We need to have that courage to face it. I think we need to see God's judgment towards our sin. And and, and maybe a better word for judgment here is is discipline. Uh, Discipline is is, is just one of those things that doesn't sit well with us today. It it seems cruel, it seems unloving, it it feels hurtful. Um, It's actually just the opposite. In fact, there are several places in the Bible where God says things like he says in Proverbs 3 verse 12, Hebrews 12 as well. Um, God says, I discipline those who I love. Think about that. So if you're receiving, like, discipline from God, it's because he loves you. He says, like a loving father disciplines their own sons. I can speak as a father. And that's what we're doing, or that's what we're trying to do. But God is a perfect father. His discipline is perfect. Um, God says, so I disciplined you. And then when you think about what that word really means, I mean, that's This is where we get the word disciple. You can't be a disciple without God's discipline. And I've always thought this, especially when reading Romans 1, that God's worst form of judgment is not his discipline. It's Romans 1 when he just looks at us and and he just lets us go. And you want that? Have it. You want to be that? Go be it. It's almost like, okay, bye-bye. And so discipline, is, it's such a sign of God's love, and you're gonna hear that, I think, today uh, through the prophet Micah. Let's start with Sermon 1, uh, verses 3 and 4. And this is what it says. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down, he treads on the heights of the earth. <laughs> Try to close your eyes and just imagine that. God's coming, and the mountains melt beneath him, the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. In other words, what, what Micah is depicting here is, is God as this like divine warrior who's uh, sitting on his throne, but now he gets up, he gets off the throne, and he comes to earth, this divine warrior putting his feet on the earth, and the whole earth is trembling and quaking and melting before him. Look at verse six. Therefore, I will make Samaria a a heap of rubble, a place, I know, (laughs) these are the things I'm gonna do today, okay, you guys just bear with me. A heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards, I will pour her stones into the valleys, I will lay bare her foundations. Samaria is another word for Israel. Israel be be utterly destroyed. Rubble, nothing but rubble. Go to verse nine. For Samaria's plague, or Israel's plague, is incurable. It has spread now to Judah. It has reached the very gates of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. So not only is the plague bringing Israel to rubble, but it's also coming to Judah. And then when you read verses 9 to 16, this plague going to all those towns and villages, those are towns and villages which are in Judah. One of those towns is Micah's hometown of Maresha. In fact, Micah's uh pretty literary here when he describes what's going on in those verses, nine to 16. Um, Everything that happens to each town is a pun on the name of that town. It would be like uh, God saying Detroit, because that's how you say Detroit, Detroit will be destroyed. Or Grand Rapids will be grand ruined. Or Chicago, Just go at a T after the I. -I (laughs) C-H-I-T-Coggle. Some of you caught that. Some of you are still thinking about it. (laughs) So this is what Micah's writing about. And sure enough, soon after Micah's prophecy, Israel's golden age comes to an end, superpower from the east rises up to rule the world. We talked about this a couple of times in the prophets, the Assyrians and their power, how they swallowed up so much of that world, uh, nations, cultures, people groups, um, and they did it with these extreme forms of brutality. And in 722 BC, they come with their vicious war machine to unleash blitzkrieg on the northern kingdom Israel. In fact, have you ever heard the term scorched earth warfare? That's when peasant farmers who attempt to defend their homes and, and their village um, are slaughtered or rounded up and exiled as slaves, and everything is burned: houses, fields, towns. Well, this is exactly what the Assyrians did, and this is what is described in verse 6. Judah spared only for two decades. Because in 701 BC, Assyria is gonna come again. We talked about this too. And they're gonna come and take out all of Judah except Jerusalem. The Assyrian king, Sennacherib, in fact, we, we have his war diary to this day, which is fascinating. Um, and he writes in that, he says, I took out 48 of Judah's cities. I exiled 250,000 of its people to my land, and I walled its king up like a bird in a cage. So who did this? Historically, historians will tell us that the Assyrians did this. The Bible, the prophets say no, God did this. This is the divine warrior. In fact, you see it right there in verse 12, it says this disaster has come from the Lord one of the questions you have to ask right now is, why God? Not just, God, why would you allow this, but why would you cause this? That's next week in Habakkuk. This week we're in Micah. Um, and I told you, I really love Eugene Peterson's uh, ability to capture the voice, the style of the prophets in his translation, the message So, look at verses, uh, chapter two, verses one to three. And I have it up here, uh, out of the message. Doomed to those who plot evil, who go to bed dreaming up crimes as soon as it's morning. They're off, full of energy, doing what they've planned. They covet fields and they grab them. They find homes and they take them. They bully the neighbor and his family, see people. They see people only for what? They can get out of them. God has had enough. And this is the first sermon. In the first sermon, God is calling out the privileged and the powerful of Judah and Israel. The halves. He's calling them out. And here's where I want to make something absolutely clear. There is nothing wrong with wealth, according to the Bible. There is nothing wrong with creating wealth. In fact, God's first mandate to humanity is to flourish. It's to build things, grow things, produce things, create things, I mean this is what it means to be made in God's image, he is the creator, and he made us to be like him. But God also makes it clear that as you create wealth, it's just wealth. Don't worship it, don't make it your life, don't make it your God or your savior, it's just money, and it's gonna pass. And more importantly, God says, I don't want you to just flourish for your sake. I want you to flourish so you can bring flourishing to my creation. I want you to use your wealth to empower others, to exalt others for righteousness' sake. This is a good time to remind us what the word righteousness means in the Old Testament because it means something different in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament. Our New Testament understanding of righteousness is um, having this righteous standing before God of of being pure and without sin. But this word righteousness in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word uh, tzedekah, or if it's just righteous, it's tzedek pretty much means generosity. And maybe it's because when we do rightly stand before God, this is what we're gonna be. We're gonna be what that word means, not even just generosity, it means radical generosity. In fact, it most literally means to disadvantage yourself so you can bring advantage to someone else. Now in the ancient world, land is money. There's no cash, there's no bank accounts, there's no credit cards. Uh, Land is the primary currency, which is why so much of God's instruction in the Old Testament that we call those laws that we've been freed from um, are actually instruction on how God's people are to steward their land, how they're, when they harvest it, um, how they're to tithe it and put it in the city gates to help those who need help, in fact, I even love it, how God distributed the land in the first place when they first entered it. Not only did each tribe receive its specific allotment of land, but then that land was, was broken down, parceled out to each clan, and, and further parceled out to each family of each clan, and that land was seen as an inheritance from the Lord. And because the land already had all these ancient markers or ancient boundaries, um, it was parceled parceled out to each family according to these ancient markers. In fact, you see these ancient boundaries all over the land to this day. Each family was giving their little piece of land to steward that for God. The psalmist says this. He says, my boundary lines referring to those ancient markers, what God had entrusted to him, they have fallen in pleasant places. The Bible's teaching us that that what God has entrusted to us, we are to be content with it. This isn't a game of, of how much can I get or who can get the most. In fact, Deuteronomy 27, 17 says, cursed is anyone who moves a neighbor's boundary line. Proverbs 22 says, do not move the ancient markers that your ancestors have set up. He says, and don't ever encroach on the fields of an orphan. Here's what I love about this. This land was not the state's. It's what we would call private property. You owned it, you were responsible for it. You were to take what God had entrusted to you and you were to, to, to cause it to flourish. And then as it flourished, God also instructed that you are not only responsible for your land, but you are also responsible for your neighbor, and your neighborhood, and your village, and the vulnerable, and the disadvantaged in your neighborhood or town. God says they are your responsibility. You are to do something about about their situations. You You are to rectify it. I mean, God over and over again says, you would to be righteous before me. Again, think, radical generosity. But look at what Micah describes in 2 verse 2. They covet fields, they seize them, and houses, and they take them. They defraud people of their homes. And what is this? It's not just taking land and property and homes. They are stealing their inheritance, which came from God. And then you go down to verse nine. (laughs) You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes, you take away my blessing from the children forever. Literally, the the, the greed is, is causing women and children to be homeless. And so, the economic boom in which Amos and, and Micah uh, lived during, which gave the haves this enormous buying power, instead of people pushing that buy, buying power into the have nots to empower them, to raise them up, they hoard it and then they use it as leverage to exploit and to impoverish. And this so pained Micah. Look at what he says in chapter one, verse eight. He says, because of this, I will weep, I will wail, I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackal. As you look at our world today, does does anything pain you? As you look at the nations, as you look at our neighborhoods, Do you ever wonder if God might be today saying, I've had enough. I've had enough. Now in the second sermon, which is in chapters three to five, now God's gonna address the leaders and their culpability in all of this. Again, I wanna look at how Eugene Peterson uh, expresses this out of the message, chapters uh Three, one through three, if I could have that. Listen, leaders of Jacob, leaders of Israel, don't you know anything of, don't you know anything of justice? And he flips this on what it's supposed to be. Haters of good, lovers of evil. I love this. Isn't justice in your job description? And now he's going to describe actually what they do, which is what the Assyrians are going to come and do to them but you skin my people alive, you rip the meat off their bones, you break up the bones, you chop the meat, and you throw it in a pot for cannibal stew. Politicians. Leaders. In fact, this whole chapter, chapter uh, three, is prophets and and politicians, um, how they're working in sync. Um, Maybe much like Today, politicians in the media with their propaganda working in sync at great expense to the people. Why? They're abusing power so they can protect their power. Here's the deal. Leaders can so quickly become monsters. And I know I'm stating the obvious when I say that. Come on, we're Americans. (laughs) We don't trust leadership. Um, We don't trust political leadership. Um, But let me just say, when a leader becomes a monster, that is not just on the leader. It's people who helped produce that monster or monsters. In fact, look at what Micah says in 2 verse 11. If someone showed up with a good smile and a glib tongue, slick, can speak well, and told lies from morning to night, I'll preach sermons that will tell you how you can get anything you want from God. You want more money, you want the best wine, you name it, I'll show you how to get it from God, and you'd hire that guy on the spot as your preacher. We as a leadership team read, uh, we, we study this together, and, and, and chapter three, verse 11, really hit us hard this week. It says her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money, Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster is gonna come upon our people. Wow, that's an indictment. That's showing that, that leaders are in power for themselves, that they're using that power to advantage themselves, uh, that they're getting paid to tell everyone just what they wanna hear. Jesus kinda said it in his own way, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Micah contrasts himself with these false prophets. Look at what he says about himself in verse 8 of chapter 3. But as for me, I am filled with the power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. That's what a true prophet does. They preach sin. How many of us preachers today are Micahs? How many of us are just false prophets? Listen, I love my job, okay? I do. I love it. My boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Thank you, God. But if you think it's an easy thing to stand up here and preach the holiness of God, and to preach sin, and to preach God's wrath towards our sin. If you want a little window into my life, I feel like every weekend I die a little death. I feel it on Monday. But I refuse, and this church refuses to be a false prophet. We trust this book. We believe this book. It's our job to simply preach the book. Even this week, I'll say this. I was so tempted even with this. And I think Dan Mike publicly right now for not allowing me to do this is to run this text to Christ because Christ is all over this book. But then I sat down and I just started reading it and reading it, and reading it. I thought, oh my goodness, as a leader, as a pastor, I need this book. I need to hear Micah say, I need to hear God say, don't you ever peddle God's word for profit. Don't you ever preach the gospel for personal gain. I need to hear Micah say that God's, Fiercest judgment is going to be on his leaders. Third Sermon, chapters 6 and 7. Here, God through Micah addresses the city. Now, cities in that day held enormous power and influence, just like they do today. Cities create culture, they set trends. Uh, this is where the elites and the powerful, the rich and the famous live. In fact, I think you could say, as our city goes, so go goes our nation. But this too is why, why pride so often wells up in a city. Urbanites tend to think that they're smarter and trendier and more cultured than those backwards people in the country. Listen to what God says to the city. Micah 6, 10 through 13. Are we having fun yet or not? (laughs) Let me show you this from Eugene Peterson. Do you expect me to overlook obscene wealth that you've piled up by cheating and fraud? Do you think I'll tolerate shady deals and shifty scheming? I'm tired of the violent rich bullying their way with bluffs and lies. I'm fed up. Beginning now, you're finished. You'll pay for your sins down to your last cent. Hey, if the shoe fits, wear it, right? Do you know that Micah is the first prophet to boldly state what was utterly unimaginable to people? And that is that Jerusalem would be destroyed. They couldn't imagine it. And I'll tell you why they couldn't imagine it. This this also comes up in Jeremiah chapter seven and other places in the prophets. It's simply because God has his house here. (laughs) God's not gonna let his city where his house is ever be destroyed. They couldn't imagine it. And yet Micah is the first prophet to say, listen to this, In Micah 3, verse 12, Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble and God's house, a mound overgrown with thickets. Now whereas Isaiah celebrated Jerusalem's survival because when Sennacherib came and took out all of Judah, remember the story, um, God sent that plague as as his army surrounded Jerusalem and, and God spared Jerusalem and Isaiah celebrated that but Micah on the other hand prophesies its destruction and maybe this is the difference between an urbanite prophet and a small town prophet Maybe Micah was willing to prophesy something that Isaiah wasn't, I don't know. But I think it's in this third sermon where we most get God's heart. In fact, look at the heading, chapter six. The Lord's case against Israel. Some of you have the Lord pleads his case because what Micah depicts uh, at the beginning of this chapter is this great court scene where even the whole world, all creation is present and they're watching and you have God speaking from one side of the room, you have Micah speaking from the other side of the room, they're both speaking in first First person, and first God makes his case in verses one to five. It's almost like God is vindicating himself as he's speaking. He says, you know, my people, look at what I've done for you. I redeemed you, I, I, I brought you out of slavery. I, I raised up Moses for you, I guided you, so that you may know of all my righteousness, all my generosity. And then Micah speaks, and he kind of unfolds his fears and tensions and all this. He says, God, how do I come to you? Shall I present to you burnt offerings? Will you be pleased with a thousand rams? Shall I offer my firstborn? And then God unfolds the deepest desire of his heart for his people. This is what the Lord requires. That you do justice. That you love mercy and that you walk humbly with your God. That's what I want. Have you ever looked at the world and asked yourself, what does God actually want for his world? I mean, this world is his artwork. This is why he doesn't wanna just burn it up and throw it away like a piece of trash. The Bible tells us he wants to restore it, he wants to reconcile it, he wants to redeem it, he wants to resurrect it, he wants to remake the goodness of Eden, permeate it. So any fire that the Bible talks about, even scorched earth that we see in Micah, it's only to refine, it's to beautify, it's to redeem, it's to restore. That's what God wants. And what is it that God wants for his people? He showed you what is good. Not just good as opposed to bad, but, but good. Think about the first time this word is used. When God made the world, he said it was good. It was good. It was good. We're talking about what is eaten good. He has shown you, oh mortal, what is good, eaten good. Because that's what he wants for his world. He wants his whole world to be eaten good. And Eden to God is not a tropical paradise. It's people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with their God. That's paradise. That's the paradise that God created. That's the paradise that God wants to bring to all creation, and he wants to do it through us. And justice is so at the heart of God. It's 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 why he's good. So when the people that he chooses as his own precious to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, to put God's justice and mercy on display, when that doesn't happen, but instead it's injustice in all its ugly forms, year after year, generation after generation, God will come to a point where he says, I have had enough. The divine warrior will then come and bring justice to injustice. You have to know that. That's what the prophets are just begging for us to know. Micah doesn't end here. Because one of the things that I left out in all three of his sermons is how each one of those sermons ends with hope. It's first the hope of God one day restoring Israel. It's the hope of God restoring Jerusalem, that one day Jerusalem is going to be the meeting of heaven and earth, and that God is going to live there, and that the nations are going to stream to Jerusalem. And why are they going to stream there? Because of the greatest hope of this book, that's everywhere messiah christ is going to become king and he's going to be king not just to the jews but he's become king to the nations and he's going to bring real peace to the world as micah puts it swords will be beaten into plowshares think about that hope what's behind all of this it's because God is more than just a God of justice because at the end of the book, right in, in the middle of chapter seven in verses seven, verses eight and nine, Israel's is personified as someone who's just kind of sitting all alone in the dark in shame and defeat, utterly humiliated. In fact, let me just read this. Let's hear how Micah puts it. Do not gloat over me. Oh, here we go. Don't enemy, crow over me. I'm down, but I'm not out. I'm sitting in the dark right now, but God is my light, and I can take God's punishing rage. Why? I deserve it. I sinned, but it's not forever. He's on my side. And if you read the verse right before that, um, Israel personified as this person there, is, is just waiting desperately, desperately for God's mercy. Now here's what you have to ask, what would give such a faithless, rebellious people this kind of hope of God's mercy? Well, first of all, God's heart, which is how this book ends. Look at verse 18. Micah says his name. Micah's name mean, means, who is a God like you? <laughs> That's exactly what he says in 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. And you will again have compassion on us. You will tread on our, our sins underfoot, and you will hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. It's God's heart. His mercy. His mercy always, in the end, wins out. So it's at the end of the book. The book is all about God's justice. But the book ends with God's mercy. And think about this chapter. It begins in God's courtroom. And who can stand in that courtroom before the most righteous judge who's gonna execute perfect justice. We're all guilty. As Isaiah said, when he was ushered into that courtroom, woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen him. This chapter doesn't end in a courtroom. This whole book ends with covenant. Micah says, You will be faithful to Jacob. You will show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. That covenant that God made with Abraham oozes God's mercy. It's God's promised Abraham Abraham, my heart is forever bound to you, your family, your people. I can't let you go. In fact, the thing that should separate me from you, your unfaithfulness and your rebellion and all your injustices, I'm going to tell you right now as I make this covenant, all of that is going to be on me. I'm going to pay for it. And this is what Micah is remembering. This is how he ends the book. And in Think about that divine warrior at the beginning of the book, but then think about that divine warrior later in our Bible who leaves his throne again, lays aside all his power and glory, becomes the lowest slave, and he's going to get down. He's going to wash his disciples' feet. It's the lowest, only the lowest of the low did this. And he washed feet of those who are going to desert him, deny him, betray him. He's going to become one of the greatest victims of injustice. He's going to be mocked, spit upon, tortured. You see your divine warrior hanging on a cross? And that cross is both the courtroom of God and it's the covenant of God. It's the fullest expression of God's perfect justice and his never-ending mercy. It's God's justice to all those who've been exploited, oppressed, abused by his wounds, we are healed. And it's God's mercy to every one of us who has rebelled, who has been unfaithful, even greedy priests, pastors, politicians. Paul said, for he who knew sin, referring to Christ, he became sin, he became our sin, he absorbed our sin into himself and he paid for it there on the cross. Why, why, says Paul, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Think about that Hebrew understanding of righteousness. Paul's saying so that we could become the radical generosity of God because that's what the cross is. It's the radical generosity of God in Christ. It's where God so disadvantaged himself for our sake so he could bring ultimate advantage to us. To raise us up, to heal us, to pour all his riches upon us. And Paul says, when you see that and you trust that with your very life, Paul says, you will become that. You will become the righteousness of God. You will become the radical generosity of God. Where money's just money, net worth isn't our self worth, and we're free to make money, lots of it. And we're free to give money away, lots of it. Because it's easy come, easy go. And we become radically generous, not just with our wealth, but with our time and our lives. And I wanna end this by being the coach in the locker room. I love this team, I love Crossroads. In light of what we're even talking about, God, He's He's pushing righteousness into this community. But listen, there's so much more for us to do and to be. We stop being like our culture. We stop Facebook wars. Can we stop thinking that we're righteous because of our political affiliation? Can we stop thinking we're righteous because of who we voted for? Can we stop thinking we're righteous simply by saying the words, I hate Donald Trump? That's our righteousness. Church is better than that. Can we stop thinking that it's the government's job? One of my best friends in college, I hadn't seen him in a long time. He was first in politics, then he was in Africa, creating safe zones in places like Somalia. Seeing these refugee camps and all that. He came to Grand Rapids about two months ago. And he asked me a simple question. What's the church doing to solve the problem of poverty in Grand Rapids? Like, what are you talking about? Now listen, I'm not prescribing right now that all of a sudden we have to solve the whole poverty problem in Grand Rapids. But I'll tell you what I loved about the question is it just kind of woke my thinking up. We don't think that way. It's the government's job. What if we started to dream dreams? What if we just simply started to think the way God taught his people to think in the Old Testament? Your neighbor is your responsibility. Your neighborhood is your responsibility. Your city, what if the churches could come together and feel the weight of the responsibility of the oppressed and the poor and to be everything that we wish the government would be? Jesus said, you're the city set on a hill. You're the light that's to shine in darkness. And Micah, God through Micah says, "But what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. God, you made it very clear to Abraham right out of the gates. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bend the knee to you, Abraham. I'm gonna make myself small to make you great. So you can be a blessing. So you can make yourself small. To make others great. May it be so, Lord, through your people. In Jesus' name, amen.